Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University Hospital. Joining us today is Dr. Eileen Bulger, Professor of Surgery at the University of Washington and Chief of Trauma at Harborview Medical Center. Dr. Bulger has focused her career in part on pre-hospital resuscitation of injured persons and was the lead author of the two articles titled Out-of-Hospital Hypertonic Resuscitation After Traumatic Hypovolemic Shock, a Randomized Placebo-Controlled Trial, which appeared in the Annals of Surgery, Volume 253, in the March 2011 issue, and also another article titled Out-of-Hospital Hypertonic Resuscitation Following Traumatic Brain Injury, which appeared in JAMA, Volume 304, in the October 6, 2012 issue. In brief, these were two multicenter clinical trials run in parallel, which involved 114 EMS agencies in the United States and Canada. The hemorrhagic shock study randomized 853 patients, and the TBI study randomized 1,282 patients to receive 7.5% saline, 7.5% saline, and 6% dextran, or normal saline following injury. Despite promising preclinical trials, the studies in question were stopped early for futility, and we'll be discussing the details of these studies with Dr. Bulger today. Thank you for joining us. Let's start by taking the hypovolemic shock study first. What were the inclusion criteria and the methods used? So the inclusion criteria were actually based on some preliminary data we had from a previous uh, hypertonic study that was done in Seattle where we initially uh, enrolled patients with a systolic blood pressure less than 90, but we recognized in that study that a number of those patients were not severely injured. So we went back and did an, a reanalysis of that, of that data set and devised these inclusion criteria, which included a systolic blood pressure less than 70 or a systolic blood pressure between 70 and 90 with an associated tachycardia, which had to be a heart rate over 108. So that was a little bit more sensitive for picking up patients truly in hypovolemic shock in the field. So those were the inclusion criteria uh, for the shock study. The, the study design was a randomized controlled blinded trial. Patients were randomized to one of the three arms. They received 250 cc's of the study fluid, designed to be the first fluid given by the paramedics. But in some cases, if a helicopter arrived a little bit later, it could be given uh, uh, subsequently. But it was given very early in the resuscitation of the patient. And then they were allowed to give additional fluids according to their local protocol. And patients were treated uh, as an intention to treat regardless of how much fluid they actually received. That's correct. Although, although uh, patients who, who had the fluid conducted to their IV line, almost all of them got all the fluid that was designed to be given. There were a small number of patients which uh, had the bag sort of open but then did not meet inclusion criteria, and so the fluid was never hung, but those people were included for analysis as well. And your primary endpoint? Primary endpoint was 28-day survival. Okay. Now, your study, as we already said, uh, compared 7.5% uh, hypertonic to 7.5% and 6% dextran and normal saline as the uh, control arm. Why did you choose these fluids in particular? Yeah, it's actually been over 20 years of research with these fluids, uh, initially developed by the U.S. Army with a, with a goal of developing a low-volume resuscitation strategy that could be easier to carry in the field. That was really the logistics behind the initial exploration. Uh, and that, that work was focused largely on 7.5% saline with, with a 6% dextran solution. Subsequent to that, however, there were a lot of preclinical studies that used 7.5% saline without dextran that showed significant immunologic effects. So it really wasn't clear from the body of literature that we had which one was better. 
And so we felt like we had an opportunity here with a multi-center study and a large sample size to have a three-arm study and really address whether or not the dextran is, is helpful or not. Okay. Now, you've alluded a couple of times uh, to the preclinical trials that really led up to this, both the human preclinical trials and the animal ones. And I thought before we got into the meat of the matter, let's talk a little bit about some of the preclinical trials regarding hypertonic saline. Sure. There were a number of small uh, human studies that were done over many years, um, none of which really reached clear statistical significance, largely due to sample size, some logistical issues but all sort of trended towards a potential benefit for hypertonic fluids in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, in addition to that, there's a large body of animal work uh, comparing uh, these different fluids in hemorrhagic shock models, also in septic models, uh, showing some advantage and showing significant immunomodulation with these fluids as well. So coupled, sort of taking that all together, we really felt like there was a potential for a real patient advantage in, the, in this study. So it was felt to be more than just a simple low-volume, volume expander. It was supposed to be an anti-inflammatory, a volume expander, uh, whatever other mechanisms may be involved. Yeah. So for hemorrhagic shock, those are the main mechanisms would be the ability to be a volume expander with a less, lower volume of fluid overall. So you would expect that patients would get less crystalloid, uh, which may be an advantage. Uh, and then in addition to that, you, you would expect... Uh, modulation of the innate immune response with preservation of the cellular immune response based on the preclinical studies. And so what do the results find? Well, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> it's not always how you envision it's going to be, but uh, the overall results showed no difference in 28-day mortality between the three groups, and the study was actually stopped early by the Data Safety Monitoring Board, uh, largely for futility, although there was a question of a safety signal in one of the subgroups. Any ideas as to why this happened? Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to know for sure. Um, it may just be that the single dose of hypertonic fluids along with other fluids in, in bleeding patients doesn't make that much difference. Because um, when they arrived at the hospital, they were converted over to conventional fluids, LR, NS, whatever. Yeah, what, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't regulate what the hospital gave. Um, and if you think about it, it's a blinded study. So the, one of the arms, the paramedics, are giving normal saline 250 cc's. And so patients may need more fluid. So we couldn't restrict them from giving more fluid than, than that. Although if that were the case, we would have thought that the, that, that arm would have done poorly. You, that's what you would think. And the invention arm would have done better. So right. um, Now, you plan for several subgroup analyses, one of which would stratify patients based on whether, the, whether or not they receive the blood transfusion in addition to whatever uh, product they received for the um, crystalloid side. Um, the Data Safety Monitoring Board found that there was a suggestion of an increased mortality in the group that received hypertonic but did not receive a transfusion. So you, you think they just needed a transfusion and that's why? Yeah, no, so this is a really interesting, I think, part of this whole thing. Uh, you know, originally we designed that subgroup analysis because of the pilot study we did in Seattle that suggested the group that had the most benefit were the group that needed massive transfusion. So we broke out the blood transfusions group more to show that we're enrolling the sick enough patients, that we weren't enrolling too many patients that weren't sick. Um, but in doing so, the Data Safety Monitoring Board was looking at that data routinely and saw this uh, quite a significant increase in mortality in the group of patients that didn't get any blood transfusion and raised that as a safety concern. We went back and did collected additional data on those patients to try to tease that out. And what it looks like is that those are the patients who are bleeding very rapidly that die very quickly, and they essentially they die before they get blood transfusion. So it's not like we're causing harm to a population of patients who don't need blood transfusions. It's just that uh, patients that are bleeding rapidly um, tend to die before they get transfused. 
that being the case, it's probably not good to die faster. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, the, both of the hypertonic arms, whether you had dextrin or not, had this tendency for those people who were going to die anyway to die a little bit sooner. Um, and so, you know, that was the potential safety concern that was raised. So said differently, people who are bleeding need blood. And no matter what you do, that's what they need until you control hemorrhage. That's correct. Um, one of the myths of resuscitation that has recently been put to rest um, is that over-resuscitation is good. And I remember very well being a resident and being taught this concept of uh, you have to swell to get well. And we, and we would just pummel people with fluid. We clearly know now that that's, that's just wrong. And morbidity uh, goes up, if not mortality, with uh, over-resuscitation. Did you predict that one of the reasons, in your hypothesis, did you postulate that one of the reasons that HTS may lower morbidity and or mortality would be a, just a net fluid response? Yeah, in fact, we expected that patients who got the hypertonic fluids would get less crystalloid. Uh, it turns out that they did not. So, uh, again, might be part of the fact that the study's blinded, and, um, and so people weren't aware of what was given in the field. Uh, but at the same time, it also suggests that we don't practice what we preach that we still tend to give quite a bit of fluid to these patients in the hospital, um, almost regardless of what the vital signs are. The patients who had hypertonic fluids in the field did tend to come in with a higher blood pressure on arrival, but still got the same amount of fluid. Was there an endpoint as far as uh, titration of fluids to blood pressure or heart rate? We did not, re we did not regulate that in the study. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that it takes a, um, a lot of internal discipline to back down on the IV fluids and allow some controlled hypotension um, in the hemorrhagic shock model. We're not even talking about the TBI model, right. so I think you right. might be right. Um, let's go ahead and talk about the TBI model. Uh, patients were randomized and included if they had a glycocoma score of 8 or less, a blunt mechanism of injury, and did not meet the criteria to go into the hypovolemic shock model. Um, but as we discussed, the study was stopped early for futility, as was the other one. So let's, I guess as an overview, let's go over some of the methods um, of that particular trial and uh, ICP monitoring. Was it used? Was it not used? The details. Yeah. So that, that trial um, enrolled more patients, actually continued longer than the shock trial, because when the shock trial was stopped, they actually looked at the TBI trial and did not see any safety issue there, so continued it. Um, but did eventually cross its futility boundary uh, that was pre-described, and then it was stopped. Uh, this, the trial was the TBI trial was different in that those patients were not in shock because if they were in shock, they're in the shock trial. Um, and so, really, you're looking at a different mechanism here. You're looking at whether the hypertonicity can, given early on, can decrease cerebral swelling, cerebral edema, and potentially improve outcome from brain injury. And so, the endpoint for the study was different as well. Instead of using 28-day survival, we used six-month neurologic function in these patients using the extended Glasgow outcome score. And we also collected the disability rating score and some other secondary measures. Bottom line was, again, we saw no difference between the treatment groups and the six-month neurologic outcome um, at, at any time point. So uh, as a result, the study was stopped for futility. Well, how many patients went on to receive hypertonic saline once they were admitted to the hospital? Did you guys monitor that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because there's a lot of practice variability in that. And, and one of my theories behind this particular study is that I think patients that have traumatic brain injury, if we're going to see a benefit, probably need to be maintained hypertonic over a longer period of time. So I do think there's a lot, there's room for more study in the TBI population. We use hypertonic study in the hospital actually based on almost no data except preclinical data. Um, and so there is opportunity to study that and figure out what the optimal timing is and what the optimal dose is. And did you guys mandate ICP monitoring or? 
Yeah, we couldn't mandate that as well, because even, even though we enroll patients based on a Glasgow Coma score less than eight in the field, there's a spectrum of brain injury, and some people meet criteria for ICP monitoring and some don't, and there's a lot of practice variability. We did have a practice care guideline that we put in place at all of the centers that's sort of indicated who should receive an ICP monitor, but we couldn't enforce it. Uh, so as a result, um, most, most of the patients study actually did not end up with an ICP monitor, um, and of those that did, it tends to be placed pretty late. Uh, and so it was difficult to really look at changes in ICP related to our therapy, which was given very early, to ICP monitoring that was often initiated more than six hours after injury. And that, you know, as, an, as a complete aside, that it really speaks volumes as far as how hospitals do in terms of ascribing to the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines for use of intracranial pressure monitoring, yes. uh, which is very consistent with my own experience yeah. as well. Yeah, it was actually a great paper presented at this meeting that looked at that question and showed the significant variability around the country. Yeah. Now, how did uh, your paramedics... Uh, screen out, or could they even screen out, GCS less than eight due to intoxication or any factor other than TBI when they enrolled these patients? Yeah. And that's the challenge of doing pre-hospital studies. You have to power it in order to account for the fact that that's going to happen. So when we did our power calculations, we assumed that 10 to 20 percent of the patients would actually not have a significant traumatic brain injury, but would be enrolled anyway. And that is about where we ended up uh, when in the final enrollment. Um, and so looking back now on the TBI trial, it seems like the paramedic was tasked with deciding if this patient is or is not injured, how badly are they injured, and go with the protocol or not go with the protocol. But given that ICP really wasn't monitored until quite late, if at all, many of the patients, who knows, might have gotten HTS for no reason. There was no, in fact, an ICP problem. We just never knew. And so does your, do you think your study talks more about use of hypertonic saline prophylactically for TBI or therapeutically, or we just kind of can't tell? I think we can't tell. I mean, I think we can tell that overall, giving a single 250cc dose in the pre-hospital setting doesn't seem to make a big difference. Um, and it's, but it's safe in TBI patients. Um, I think really it, it drives us to think about further study designs that would actually have targets for osmolarity or targets for surge sodium and then would monitor them over a longer period of time. And some of the patients, I assume, also received mannitol therapy once they arrived. So that, again, confounds the yeah. ultimate outcome. And we tracked that. There was no difference in the use of mannitol between the two groups. So seemingly, it kind of just gets back again to either a lack of enough hypertonic saline or perhaps patient selection based on intracranial pressure and the need for right. a hypertonic agent right. to begin with. Right. Um, one of the holy grails of critical care, I think, in general, is finding the perfect immunomodulator. We have yet to find any such thing. Much to my chagrin, Zagris was, uh, was not the answer either. Um, and we talked earlier today about the immunomodulatory effects of hypertonic. So where do you think things are going to shake out for immunomodulation related to hypertonic saline? So hypertonic saline was a very attractive immunomodulator because if you look at all the preclinical studies, it suppressed the initial innate immune response, which we think is excessive, but at the same time it enhanced the adaptive immune response. That all the work by Wolfgang Younger's group suggested it actually enhances T cell function and so forth. So the idea being that you know you can blunt that initial sort of cytokine storm that you see in patients, but that you can preserve the response to infection. Uh, and the other th nice thing about hypertonic saline is that it's transient. So, so once the hypertonicity is gone, the their innate response is going to return to normal. So, 
you know, it, it's an attractive immunomodulator. Um, what we showed in this study, and we looked at secondary endpoints like ARDS and multiple organ failure and so forth, and we didn't see a difference. Um, so again, it may be a patient selection issue trying to hone down on those really seriously injured patients. It may be a longer period of hypertonicity that's needed. Um, but the single bolus in the field didn't translate into those clinical endpoints that we'd like to see change with an immunomodulator. We did do a sub-study of this, which is funded on an R01, to look at blood samples from these patients and actually try to tease out whether the immune response was changed the way we would expect. And it actually was. So the preclinical studies are not wrong. You can show the same immunologic effects in humans. It just, we couldn't show that it translated into a, a change in outcome. Well, that's interesting because I didn't know about the uh, the subgroup analysis. So that that again gets back to um, more of a volume related problem, perhaps, because the immunomodulation was was apparently there. It was there, yeah. So given that, then, uh, and the fact that these are the largest and potentially the best uh, preclinical studies, uh, pre-hospital studies done to date uh, with hypertonic, um, is the issue settled? I mean, you did a randomized prospective study, essentially times two. Um, or do you think there's room to further investigate? And um, let's talk both in terms of the pre-hospital setting and also post-arrival. Yeah. So like all studies, it raises more questions than answers, I think. I, I think it answers the question of whether the original concept, which would be a single bolus in the pre-hospital setting, is going to make a difference. And the answer is no in both populations of patients. It doesn't answer the questions that we've talked about already for traumatic brain injury about maintaining people hypertonic over longer periods of time. I think there is a concern about giving it early to shock patients based on this, uh, this data, but there may be a role for it later in the hospital. There was a very nice paper presented here at the AAST that I discussed yesterday um, looking at 3% saline infusions for patients after damage control surgery, and their thinking was we're going to reduce bowel edema and make it easier to close patients. Very reasonable thought process and very provocative sort of preliminary data which I think would warrant a trial. So I think there's still room to study hypertonic saline in the hospital and try to tease out what the right patient population is, which is easier to pick out in the hospital than it is in the field, and what the right timing and what the right dose is. Well, but in the field, if one of the uh, potential biggest uh, problems with the study was lack of sufficient volume, just 250 mils wasn't enough, and this stuff is heavy and whatnot, should is there even a reason to consider uh, studying 250 mil aliquot again, but in a more concentrated regimen, thereby increasing the effective dose. Yeah, it gets it gets it gets touchy if you get much more concentrated than seven and a half percent. You can give up to 23.6 percent, which neurosurgeons give in, in small boluses of 50 cc's or so um, to patients. But you really have to have close sodium monitoring. There is a risk that we could overshoot. You know the. Just take saying, well, this concentration is not enough. I'm going to go higher. I think adds a potential safety risk. So you're you're thinking that the, for the time being, anyway, the pre-hospital stuff is kind of settled, and you want to go back into the hospital setting to do a more controlled study. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I would suggest that for TBI patients, it, it's possible you could start it in the pre-hospital setting, but you need to continue it into the hospital, uh, or or focus on a, a patient. A, patient population you can tease out very early in the emergency department that you know have severe traumatic brain injury because they've had a CAT scan now. Um, and then you start them and you maintain them over two or three days. For the shock patients, I would look at therapies that we start after we've got bleeding controlled, mm -hmm. uh, either in the operating room or in the ICU, and you know a lower, maybe a lower rate at a continuous infusion may have some benefits on edema, subsequent need for crystalloid, re resolution of acidosis, that sort of thing. 
Well, I mean, clearly the uh, the topic of hypertonic saline stays very relevant. As you said, at the um, 2012 meeting of the WSD, which is where we're at now, uh, there were a couple of papers uh, on the topic. So I agree with you. I don't. Th I think that there's plenty more um, research to be done. Uh, I was a bit disappointed that your studies turned out to be negative. You probably more than me. Uh, but I think in the in-hospital setting, particularly in regards to traumatic brain injury, there's there's plenty more to be done. Um, so I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with us today and go over these uh, these two uh, very large, well-done studies that help put the whole argument uh, a, a bit more into perspective. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani.